Well, would you turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, and that to chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. And here we come to the narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's Word. In those days the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so very privileged to be able to hear from Your Word. Speak to us, we pray, in the power of Your Holy Spirit as we embark on this scene of nativity of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Stir our affections and draw us deeper and closer unto Him. Would He not only rule over us by His power, but reign over us by His Word. Do that now in the hearing and preaching of Your most holy Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Away in the manger, no crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down His sweet head. The stars in the bright sky looked down where He lay the little Lord Jesus asleep on the hay. Well, you're probably aware of these words which are often sung by children during the season of Christmas. Many believe that it was the German reformer Martin Luther who wrote this short lullaby. But more so, this sweet melody tells us something of the great disparity that lies within the Incarnation. That this little newborn baby who was sleeping in a stable under the vast array of stars was himself its creator who spoke all the universe into existence. That there in the late evening hours in the town of Bethlehem, he who is before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, became became flesh. And you see, that mystery should never become familiar to us. We should never lose our amazement that He who was infinite became an infant. That He who is almighty became needy. That He who is sovereign became fragile and weak. One of the truths of Jesus Christ that we will never fully come to understand this side of heaven, is the incarnation of God's Son. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he said this, how could it be that He who thunders in the heavens should cry in the cradle? We ought to be baffled when we give thought to the contradiction that exists 
in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Even the Apostle Paul himself, he admitted his inability to truly grasp the mystery of the incarnation. He writes in 1 Timothy 3, he said, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness that He was manifested in the flesh. You see, in our understanding, we cannot fathom the perfect union of these two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. But yet, when we consider what the incarnation of Christ accomplished, you see, our wonder, our wonder ought to turn to worship. What is it that the incarnation of Jesus Christ, what is it that it accomplished? The answer is our salvation. Simply put, He had to become one of us in order to save us. This is the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, that He would become the Son of Man that we might become sons and daughters of God. And you see, we will go wrong if we fail to consider that the incarnation is is really a story of God's unfolding plan of redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. That God who could not die became a man so that He might subject Himself to death and die a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. We've been going in our Thursday midweek services through the book of Hebrews. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. Jesus Christ was made lower than the angels so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. You see, it was for the purpose of redemption. There is a reason, as Pastor Eric just read, why His name is Jesus. For He shall save His people from their sins. You see, the incarnation is the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian this afternoon, you need to know that this story of a baby's birth is not the beginning of a biography, but a message of salvation in which God who is divinity was clothed in our humanity in order to save a rebellious people. We are fallen creatures who fail to rightly acknowledge and obey our Creator. We lie and cheat and steal, do all sorts of ungodly things in our hearts like we make idols, we commit murder, we lust after the flesh, We covet earthly things like money. We're proud. We're greedy. We're deceitful. We're dishonest. And all these things and more, we defame God our Maker. We slander His pure and holy name. And as the judge of all things whose eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, He sees our hearts that all have sinned and turned each to his or her own way. He sees us, beloved. He knows what takes place inside and what he has found is that we are full of sin. Our brother Rendell said it so perfectly. And he has so sentenced us to receive the full measure of his wrath. But God in his love came down to us. Born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, He entered our condition in Jesus Christ. And that in every point of our humanity, yet without sin. He lived from the cradle, but He died on the cross, taking upon Himself the sins of those He would save and bearing the full weight of their wrath. But He was subjected 
But he who subjected himself to death, he was raised from death to life. So that those who died of self and placed their trust in his redeeming work would too be raised unto everlasting life. This is the gospel. And this is why Jesus came draped in our garments, garments of our flesh, to save sinners such as ourselves. And this salvation, if you're not a Christian, this salvation is for you if you so desire it. This is the gift of a Savior that by faith you need to repent of your sins and receive. And so I implore you to come to Him this afternoon. And as we turn our attention here to the Gospel of Luke, the condescension of Christ didn't begin and end at the cross, but rather here in Bethlehem, which culminated at Calvary. And this is what we need to keep in mind as we see here the birth of Christ. And I have an outline for us that consists of four observations that teach us about the utter humility of Christ. That show us the contradiction, the, the disparity of the incarnation of God's Son, which I hope would result in our worship. You see, that's the end goal. Not simply that we would come here and be observers, but that we would be worshipers. Well, the first thing I want us to see is this. That Jesus was born during the reign of a very powerful king. Here in Luke chapter 2, the narrative of Jesus' birth begins with a king by the name of Octavius, who became king when Julius Caesar was assassinated by a group of senators on the Ides of March, or the 15th of March. And because Julius Caesar didn't have any legitimate children under Roman law, he adopted his grandnephew Octavius to be his primary heir. And when he did, he changed his name to Caesar, Augustus. And it was at the height of his power that he did what Roman kings do best, and that is collect taxes. That all people, all 100 million of them, scattered over 3,340,000 miles, might render unto Caesar. And so the people under his rule, they had to register. No taxation without registration. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. Please register if you have to. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, what seemed to be a decision made by the world's most powerful king was really the movement from the hand of a sovereign God. It was God's secret providence working in the background. We find God, as we so often do, orchestrating the events of time to ensure that here the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. And you might say, well, why, why Bethlehem? It's to satisfy the Old Testament prophecy. In the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler, ruler in Israel. And that's what's happening here. As the decree from Caesar Augustus leads to the fulfillment of that promise from God. And so that decree reaches the tiny village of Nazareth so that this carpenter and his young bride who is expecting, they're forced to travel to his hometown. 
Now I wonder if Mary, knowing that she was carrying the Son of God, knew that this baby, knowing her Scriptures, knew that this baby would have to be born in Bethlehem. And you can just imagine young Mary possibly scratching her head, residing in Nazareth, wondering how she would end up in Bethlehem. I live here in Nazareth, but I need to get there in Bethlehem. But soon enough she hears the decree. Look with me in verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, I want you to see what Luke is doing here. He's telling us not to fix our eyes on the wrong king, but upon the true one and only king. You see what Luke is doing here in the narrative? His message to his readers is not to be so impressed with the world's most powerful king, but to be preoccupied with the everlasting king. It's because where does Joseph and Mary need to go to be registered? To the city of David. Why? It's because he was of the house and lineage of David. He keeps bringing up David, David, David. You see, if you want to find the real king, this is where you need to go, whose throne as promised to David will be established forever. It was in Psalm 110 that David, in looking towards the Messiah, he wrote, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Luke is he's showing us here how God is quietly moving in the most powerful earthly king to make way for the true and eternal king. So that our eyes and our hearts, so that our full attention would be set upon that king. Beloved, isn't it interesting here as we look at this narrative that, that Caesar Augustus, ruler over the entire Roman Empire, was completely clueless in that he had absolutely no idea what was taking place. That the world's most powerful king was simply put to use as a pawn. Put to work as a servant. And that unknowingly. He didn't know what was going on. Beloved, this teaches us who is really in control. You see, we can get really worked up. We can get really worked up, as I do, about politics. And we can find ourselves filled with anxiety about the current state of this world in which we live. We can worry about all that we watch on the news. About this event and that event. But let me remind you, Christian, we have a Father in Heaven who is enthroned, who is sovereign, who is in complete control and authority. And as we pray daily, His will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. And you see the decree of Caesar Augustus. It was part of the divine plan. Which which means God rules all things for His glory. And this isn't true only for the, the great events of redemptive history, but the ordinary events, the mundane events, the seemingly insignificant events. God is working for His glory. 
may we never place our eyes on any earthly king. May we never place our eyes on any Caesar, but upon the King in heaven who really does have the power and the glory forever and ever. We can sometimes place undue attention on the things that appear to be powerful, the things that appear to be influential, the things that appear to be significant and important. There are a lot of different Caesars that our hearts seek to crown. That our heart's desire is to be ruled by and influenced by. It can be something material or immaterial. It can be something tangible or intangible. But whatever it may be, it ought not to rule over us and make us its subjects, church. As Mary said before, we are servants of the Lord. And so even at the outset of Jesus' birth, we're taught to readjust our focus to render our lives not unto Caesar, but to Him that our worship is due. And so that's the first observation from Jesus' birth. He was born with the backdrop of a very powerful king. And the second is this, that when the time came, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Look with me in verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. When Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem sometime later, Luke tells us that the time, that the time came for her to give birth. Now obviously Luke means it to say that Mary, she went into labor. She started having contractions. And then her water broke. Meaning the time had come for her to give birth. But there's more than that here. It's because the Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. And the reference there to the fullness of time is a, is a reminder of the fact that God, from the very beginning, has been ordering the events of history, not just a decree, but every movement in the universe has been working for God's unfolding plan of redemption. Now notice that when we come to the actual account of Jesus' birth, it ought to surprise you. Notice how brief it is. Luke covers 24 chapters in the, his Gospel, over a thousand verses, yet one of the most crucial events in the whole of human history is summarized in one verse, and that with staggering simplicity. But in this short, in this short simple statement, no pun intended, it is pregnant with great meaning. Here we're told that she gave birth to her firstborn son. No other description. No other title. No other name. Just that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. But what do we know about Mary's firstborn son? That he was God's only begotten Son. And here, this is the cosmic contradiction that Luke gives to us in the story. That the Son of God would rest in the dark womb of a woman He Himself had created. The Puritan Thomas Watson, he chimes in on this discrepancy. He says, that the Ancient of Days should be born. That He who rules the stars should suck the breast. That a virgin should conceive. 
that Christ should be made of a woman, and of that a woman He Himself made, that the branch should bear the vine, that the mother should be younger than the child she bare, and the child in the womb bigger than its mother. How do you make sense of this? It's such a contrast that the Creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, the King of angels, became a man taking on our flesh and doing so from the very beginning, the fragile beginning of life. And here's the thing. It's not that He was humbled, but that He humbled Himself. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that He humbled Himself. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't pressured by the Father, but He humbled Himself. In other words, He gladly came to us. That the Holy Son of God would come through the womb of a sinful woman named Mary to a sinful humanity. How could the Son of God do this? Be born a helpless infant. Be held in His mother's arms. And the answer is, it's because He loved sinners. And that He might be sympathetic to us as sinners. Have you ever asked, why didn't Jesus just come down from heaven, a full man, strong and powerful and vibrant, to save us from our sins? Why didn't He just do it like that? Why did He come to us as a baby? In order to enter into our situation at its weakest and its most frail point, He came being born. Taking on all the limitations of our physical existence. You know, when I visit a couple who have just had a baby, I'll visit them, they'll sometimes say, "Uh, Pastor Danny, do you want to hold him? Do you want to hold her? And most of the time, I'll say, no thank you. (laughs) Not because I don't like your baby, absolutely not, but because I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I don't want in any way to disturb the baby. Or worse, harm the baby. I fear because of my own strength. I don't have strength now. I used to have some strength. And I would be afraid to hold babies. And so wouldn't it have been fitting for the sky to break open and for the Son of God to come with storm and clouds and trumpets of angels in all glorious power. And He will one day. He will one day when He returns. But when He first came, He came to us weak and helpless. Why? So that He wouldn't save us from a distance, but come to us as close as He possibly can. That He might sympathize with us in our weakness. You see, Jesus, He knows the rebellion of our hearts. He knows that if He were to come and command us and put us in shackles and chains, we would resist with with everything in us. And so He comes to us vulnerable. He comes to us weak. He comes to us helpless to draw us to Himself. And He comes to us vulnerable and He comes to us weak and He comes to us helpless so that no one would ever be able to say to Him, no one would 
be ever able to say to Jesus, you don't understand me, Jesus. The book of Hebrews says that He is our sympathetic high priest. That He was made like us in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, the Son of God was born that we might know that we have a Savior who understands our weaknesses and our frailties. And you see, that's why it was necessary for us that the Son of God be given birth. Notice thirdly here in the narrative that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now can you imagine for a moment what must have been going through young Mary's mind? Remember what she was told by the angel Gabriel? She was told, Greetings! Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, here she was about to give birth, but nowhere to do so. And it's not that the hotel manager here was rude and unwelcoming, but most likely Joseph and Mary traveled to the home of relatives. And because everyone in the family had gathered together in order to register, right? That's where he was from. There was no room in the house. There was no room in the place where guests were usually placed, a sort of common room. There were no vacancies. And so they had to go to the next best accommodation they could find, which was out with the animals. But more than Mary's expectation was the realization that Mary was told that she would give birth to a son whom she would name Jesus. And remember what the angel told her? She was told by the angel that He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see the disparity? Mary was told that she would give birth to God's Son. And that His kingdom would have no end. And and yet here she was in a stable with animals. But more so, here was God's Son laid in a manger, a feeding trough for those very animals. You know, if we were to think of the kingship of God, the first place that we would go to would be that heavenly description of what the, prop, what the prophet Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. This amazing picture of these six-winged creatures surrounding the throne of God and finding His majesty and His kingly royalty so overwhelming that they veil their faces and their feet as they fly in obedience to Him, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And you see, at every sound that came from these creatures, the heavens quaked. And Isaiah describes that the heavens were filled with smoke. And the description of God that Isaiah provides is this, I, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of His robe filled the temple. And here's what the Gospel of John says. That Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, beloved, that's where He belongs. In untainted 
heavenly glory. He is King Jesus. He belongs in spheres and realms that shake at the voice of angels continually praising Him. He belongs in the heavens where He is exalted in majesty and power and glory and might. But when He comes to us, the eternal and everlasting King comes to us in a manger. In a cradle in which the animals eat their food. This is the incarnation. That He who is infinitely high, stooped and bent, oh so devastatingly low. And it's such a contrast that through whom and for whom all things exist, the eternal King would lie in a manger. You know, parents, when you had your first child, where did you put your baby to sleep? You remember? I remember before Cammy was born, we went to a children's pottery barn. It was very quality. And I bought a crib more expensive than my own king-sized bed. I remember. And then when my second Coco came, I went to Ikea. I was not going to make that mistake again. But here was the eternal Son of God laid in a feeding trough, a feeding bowl. And you might ask, why was He placed in a feeding bowl? To tell us that He was the bread of life. That whoever comes to Him shall not hunger. And whoever believes in Him shall never thirst. And that to give eternal life. He came to us in a feeding trough. In our humanity, because as Mary had sung previously in her song in Luke chapter 1, verse 53, to fill the spiritually hungry with good things. And you see, that's what the incarnation of Jesus Christ was. For that He would come to give the spiritually starving food unto everlasting life. Now as we take a step back here, we observe this scene in the stable in this one particular house in Bethlehem, what I can't help notice, and you might notice this too, is the quietness in which the Lord came. It's as if nobody knew. Or that nobody cared. It ought to humble us, no? To to see the manner in which He came. No great welcome No historic fanfare, no kingly pomp, nor pageantry, but he came unrecognized. He came virtually unacknowledged. Isaiah the prophet, he says this in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 3 The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not. My people do not understand. The welcome that Jesus failed to receive. It is really a hint of what the Gospel of John said about Jesus' ministry as a whole. It says there in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own and His people did not receive Him. You see, Jesus was rejected all through His ministry right up to the very end. He was driven out of His hometown. Many who followed Him at first turned away. The religious leaders scoffed at Him until they plotted together to kill Him. You see, it wasn't just Bethlehem there in that inn in which there was no room. 
There was never enough room for Jesus. Yet He came for us. He lived for us. And He died for us sinners. Can I ask you a question? What kind of welcome are you giving Him right now in your life? Is there any room? Is He residing in your heart as you come to Him by faith? Is there any room for Him in your busy, preoccupied day that is filled with all these important things? Is it overcrowded? Overcrowded with thoughts of worldly ambition and pleasure. Thoughts of what you need to pursue to be happy in this world. Is there room for your Creator and Maker and Redeemer and Savior? You see, what the innkeeper and the others in Bethlehem did in their ignorance, we often do in our willful indifference. We refuse to make room for the Son of God. We give no place for Him in our thoughts and in our affections. We give no place for Him in our decisions and in our actions. We give no place for Him. And thus, the story of Jesus' birth not only shows us His love and His humility, but it shows also our sinful depravity. Does it not? This narrative shows us our sinful depravity. It shows us how unwelcome Jesus is to us until God by His grace and by His Spirit reveals Him to us. But this is why Jesus came. He came to save us. And fourthly and lastly, Luke tells us that once Mary gave birth, she wrapped Him in swaddling cloths. She wrapped Him in swaddling cloths. Notice it says, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped Him in swaddling cloths and laid Him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Notice there are no imperial robes but a swaddling cloth. You know, if you've ever gone shopping for clothes for a baby, you'll notice that their clothes are the softest clothes, right? And their blankets. I don't know why baby blankets are like this, but it's the softest blankets. Why can't they make adult blankets like baby blankets? I don't know why. Or maybe adult clothes like baby clothes. But swaddling cloths, here in the ancient Near East, they were not made from the softest of cottons, but rather they were these rough, rough cloth bands. And when a baby was born, the umbilical cord was cut and the baby was washed. And then the baby was rubbed in salt and oil. But after being prepared, they would use these cloth bands to wrap the baby. And they would wrap the baby really tightly because they believed very ignorantly, they didn't know at the time, that doing so would cause the baby's limbs to grow straight. And so they thought we have to wrap the baby so that the baby's limbs grow straight and it would prevent the baby's limbs from being deformed. The Lord, He he uses this metaphor in speaking to Job in Job chapter 38 when God says that He wrapped the sea in thick darkness like a mother would wrap her infant in swaddling bands. Well, why is this of any significance? It's because of the irony. If you look in chapter 2, how were the shepherds to recognize the Savior born 
in the city of David. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. The angel said to them, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. What's the sign for these shepherds? The sign was that they would find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. How would they recognize the Savior? He would be bound tightly in ignorance. And the irony is that he who was tightly bound in ignorance in the beginning would be so in the end. Bound tightly at his birth, so too would he be bound tightly in his death at the hands of ignorant and sinful men and that upon the cross to be crucified. From the cradle to the cross, so Jesus Christ came. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so you by His poverty might become rich. This is the purpose of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's the wonder of the Gospel message that He would come from the bosom of His heavenly Father to the bosom of a woman in the rags of our humanity and that to save us. Beloved, as we close, let us think deeply of these truths. Let us be astounded by His humility. Let us gaze at the mystery of God who became flesh. And let us give to Him, church, unrestrained worship and praise. Let's pray together. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We praise and thank You for the great condescension of Your Son in coming down to us and to meet us in our weakness and in our frailty for putting on our flesh and that to live for us and to die for us as our perfect and spotless sacrifice. This is love unmeasured. Love like none other. And we confess that we are unworthy servants of the Lord. We often forget that we are Yours. We make no room for Christ who is our King. Forgive us for our apathy and even for our idolatry. Forgive us for our sins. Restore and renew us as we look not only to the cradle, but to the cross where our sins were paid. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer and Savior, we pray. Amen.